right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another fantastic episode of Adventures in DevOps. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Nell Shemrell Harrington. With me today is my co-host, uh, Charles Maxwood. Chuck, how are you doing today? I'm exhausted. So, folks, if you, it sounds like I'm asleep, just shake your phone and wake up. <laughs> Chuck is the new virtual assistant. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. We have a fantastic guest uh, here today. Uh, Julian, how about you introduce yourself? Uh, for sure. My name is Julian, last name Farah, but don't worry about pronouncing that. That's, I think, the running gag on, on the other shows I've been on. Um, my wife can't pronounce it either. Yeah, um, I think I've destroyed your last name on like three different shows, so. It's, it's okay. I enjoy it. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community, and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET focused or Microsoft focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out D-O-T-N-E-T, adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. Not much to say about me. I'm a software engineer. I, uh, I come from a system admin slash opsy background um, and kind of go back and forth between software development and uh, doing DevOpsy stuff. And right now I work at a fantastic company called Hover. We do 3D reconstruction of houses based on pictures so that people don't have to manually climb on a roof and measure it. They just take a couple of pictures with their iPhone or Android phone. Um, and I'm helping moving the company towards continuous delivery. That's awesome. So I wonder, that hover thing sounds really cool. And I'm wondering if someone had pictures of their house and the house burned down, let's say, or something like that, would you still be able to do a 3D scan based on the pictures? If the house was burned down? Uh, yeah, if they had pictures from before it was burned down, but yes. Yeah, sure. It will still work. That's cool. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you are getting us continuous delivery set up there. And that is indeed the topic for today. So let's go ahead and dive in with what is continuous delivery? Uh, what does it mean to do the CD? Uh, Julian, how about you kick us off? Sure thing. So I guess most of us do some form of continuous integration where you, um, you write some code, you push it to uh, some Git repository, maybe or a subversion or whatever. And that kicks off um, some automated testing. Um, so you got to make sure that the software or the, the code changes you made pass the tests, that everything is uh, working as expected. You create your build artifacts. And then for us at Hover, that's kind of where it stopped uh, in terms of automation. And um, deploys for us happened about once or twice per week, uh, unless we messed something up and had to deploy a hotfix. Um, and continuous delivery kind of uh, continues the, the integration part where the idea is that you have a, a build that you can deploy to any environment at any point in time. Mm. And uh, if you, oh, I think someone just joined us. Yeah, that's Scott. Oh, hey, Scott, we've got a late arrival on the show uh, during the recording. Uh, Scott, how are you doing today? Good, good. I'm sorry. I'm a few minutes late. I had a meeting go over. That's absolutely okay. We are glad you are here. We are here with Julian, our guest, and we are discussing the fantastic topic of continuous delivery. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, nice to meet you. Hey, Julian. How are you? Excellent. Great. Well, let's go ahead and continue. I think, uh, Julian, you were saying at Hover, it kind of stopped at continuous integration. Uh, so what's the difference between continuous integration and continuous delivery? Let, let's spell it out. Uh, continuous integration, yeah, some form of automation around um, making sure that the code you're writing passes the tests um, and conforms to your standards. And continuous delivery ensures that you not only have passing tests, but that you have deployable artifacts of your code that you can deploy to a runtime at any point in time without jumping through hoops. That's right. Being able to deploy uh, anytime, anywhere. Uh, I remember 
this is before we had set up continuous delivery. I was working at a company and someone was bragging to me how the Wi-Fi connection on his plane was so good. Uh, he was able to deploy from the airplane. Yeah, I think he was doing a Capistrano deploy, which which good for him, but that that's living kind of dangerously to me. So. <laughs> that's not very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Halfway through it craps out and it can't send the next command. So you're in lim limbo. Oh, that would be so bad. I could just awesome. imagine. Oh, yeah. All right. I, well, I do ahead. have a question here. Um, we, on dev chat, we have shows about mobile um, as well as web and on web. Typically, yeah, your uh, deployable runnable production assets are things like your rails app or your uh, Python Django app or your node app or whatever. Right. And so as long as it passed the test and you're confident it'll work, you, you deploy it. But for mobile apps, a lot of times there's a build step in the middle of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so your deployable assets are essentially a build of the app. I guess we're seeing that more with things like Webpack and things like that as well on, on front ends in web development. So to me, it seems like it's not just having something that will deploy or could go to production, but actually pushing it to production is uh, continuous uh, delivery and continuous integration, I guess, covers everything up, including the build. Or, or do you draw the line somewhere else? Uh, I think the line is, according to Martin Fowler Tron, between the ability to deploy at any point in time and actually doing it. If you're actually doing it, you're doing continuous deployment. And if you say, oh, I could, and I will do whenever I feel like it, you're doing continuous delivery. Okay. Kind of okay. like uh, I, I can go to the gym whenever I want versus, right? Right, right. It's like having the membership but not doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. so, so, so the one is, um, I guess, uh, more valuable than the other? Um, I think both are valuable and you can't continuously deploy without uh, doing continuous delivery. So okay. one is the predecessor of the other. And in some perfect universe, we're going to end up deploying every single change um, goes to master into production right away. But that's not the plan for at least this year. This year, we want to get to a state where everything is, is prepared to, to get there and we kind of get rid of manual QA steps and we integrate feature flex and all these other things that are required in order to, to be able to do this. Right. I'm remembering I saw on Twitter once uh, someone had used an Arduino to set up a little, uh, it was like in war games when they're getting ready to launch the missile or think they're getting ready to launch the missile where you turn a key and then press a button. And they had set that up to do the actual deployment. Uh, so they'd have I everything ready to do, ready to do there. But they, they, I, you know, I find a lot of orgs I go into, they're, they're still you know, a little, it, it makes them nervous at the idea of something being merged into master and immediately being deployed yep. at any given time, because what if what's merged into master breaks? So how, how would you respond to someone who's worried about that? Uh, yeah, great question. That's the, the cultural changes that are required, you know, as you do that are actually quite big and definitely something that we, uh, we deal with a lot. There's, so one of the, the main ideas is that you hide everything behind feature flags. So deploying a piece of code that not, does not mean that this piece of code is going to be active in production after it's deployed. Right. And you can slowly release this feature to uh, your user base, starting by, oh, maybe we're just going to test it with our QA people, and then we're going to test it with two customers, and then 10, 100, and then maybe all of them. So it's like a gradual release. Right. There's a, there's a company, I think it's called Launch Darkly, mm -hmm. that, that specializes in that, yes. in feature flags or, you know, launching a feature, but not necessarily turning it on just yet for everyone. Right, right. There's a couple, Launch Darkly, Split.io, gotcha. um, and so many. Awesome. Well, why would someone want to deliver continuously? I mean, what's... Uh, uh, what are what are some met metrics and yeah, I'm, I, when I say metrics, I always think of Dr. Nicole Forsgren, who's a friend of mine and also the author of Accelerate. But why why mm -hmm. would an organization want to deliver continuously? Um, yeah, for us, the the keyword here is actually the Accelerate book, which is sort of a bible in the company right now. And I think the uh, what's the name uh, the Dora the DevOps Research and Assessment Group and and Google uh, bring out this report every year about the state of DevOps. And um, what they've been seeing for the past years is that people that companies that deploy more frequent and have a shorter of lead time from commit to being in production are generally producing more stable and um, more stable and better results in their engineering uh, organization, if that makes sense. 
So for us as an ever-growing organization, I think we are a year and two months ago when I joined, we were maybe 80 people in the company. We're over 200 now. We just reached that milestone a couple of days ago. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, exciting times. Um, the, the requirements of the engineering orgs just keep on changing. We have way more applications. Um, we have obviously bigger teams and more teams, and we have larger projects that we're trying to tackle. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to kind of keep the whole system in someone's head and like see it as a whole as more more moving pieces. And um, obviously, as a company, you want to do better and not worse in the future. So we are trying to establish practices in the company that help us to ensure that the code that we are shipping to production um, works. And if it doesn't work, we can react fast and fix it as needed or turn off that feature flag and make sure that users are not impacted. Got it. So something I'm wondering, uh, you know, speaking of another classic DevOps book, uh, the Phoenix Project. And in the Phoenix Project, there's this character named Brent, who is the guy who has, or the person, excuse me, who has all the knowledge of how the system is deployed in his head, and he's the only one who has that. Yep. Uh, did, were you all in that kind of situation uh, when you started this journey? Uh, if you're able to say, of course. Um, I don't think that we were in a position where anyone understood the whole system anymore. Ah, uh, I gotcha. Um, so we kind of surpassed that stage, and um, there's there's definitely a lot of people that's been in the company for five six years um and they know a lot but at some point you can't can't keep up with the change anymore right. and in order to so the, the main idea we're trying to go to is have more a self-service platform where teams can push out their own applications and manage the life cycle of them of those applications on their own without requiring a dedicated team to set up infrastructure and um, policies and routing and all that stuff does that make sense that does. And I know that I, I've worked at places where that was the case. There was one team that handled all the infrastructure, all the operations. Mm -hmm. And as a developer, I come from a development background. I was yeah. always really frustrated because I had something ready to ship. I had customers who wanted that feature and I had to wait uh, until this one small team, and this wasn't their fault, but until they had the bandwidth to be able to spin up the infrastructure that I needed or make the changes to the infrastructure that I needed. So sometimes I would just SSH in and try to make the changes myself. Uh, it didn't go well. So <laughs> it's so important for it. For, for I mean, oh, when you, man. like you, I, I know when you have development teams, you make them responsible for their own infrastructure. You have to have a lot of automation in there and a lot of safety checks in it uh, to right. avoid a situation where mm -hmm. someone makes a change they didn't mean to and the system goes down. Right. I, I worked in an organization that handled government data. Um, specifically, we were um, mapping crime data onto maps so people could see where crimes had occurred around them. I mean, we, we anonymized the data so you could, you could tell what block it happened on, but not what house it happened in, I guess. Um, you know, so it was like on this street, you know, uh, numbered between the, you know, and uh, yeah, so we had all this crime data that police stations were, or police, police departments would send us and other law enforcement agencies would send us. And so we would put it on the map and then we would also um, allow them to use that for other, you know, we would provide them other tooling on the back end. So, um, you know, they could see heat maps, you know, so this, you know, this particular area seems to have more crimes appearing on it or um, registered sex offenders would show up on their maps. And, uh, you know, we, we worked on an aspect of neighborhood watch, but all this information, since it was owned by a police department, involved people's actual information. Now they anonymized a lot of it, but, you know, you could still, you know, um, domestic dispute at that house meant, you know, you could figure out who it was. So, um, yeah, there were a lot of restrictions on what we, we could do with it. So, we weren't just waiting for them to say, okay, it's stable. It was actually them certifying our changes. And then um, they also had to go and look at all of our dependencies and make sure that they didn't have any uh, vulnerabilities. And then they had to package it up as an NPM package or an RPM, sorry, so that it could be deployed to whatever I was going to be impressed if you did that in an NPM package. Yeah, no, it was RPM. It was Rails, but they package it as an RPM deploy it to the, the servers and all that stuff. And so they had to manage the whole stack. And it was, yeah, it, it would take them sometimes weeks when we added a dependency. And so, 
that drove some of our development just to not have another dependency. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Scott, what's your experience with continuous delivery? Ooh, you know, I mean, I think, um, you know, you, you know, obviously there's big cultural hurdles, right? Where you're, you have to get to the point where, you know, the, that you have the internal processes and everybody's on the same page that the, that you're going to continue to write code and write tests and do build, build the application and the pipeline in such a manner that like you can actually do continuous delivery. And so it's really a lot about, you know, kind of getting everybody in alignment on that. And so that, and also, of course, you know, getting those, um, you know, kind of event monitoring and, and, and stuff like that to, to recover for any kind of failures that do, do occur from, you know, del- constant, continuous, continuously delivering um, new changes, you know, on a very quick, rapid basis. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really the, the pain points I've seen is just really kind of getting everybody comfortable with it and, and, um, you know, I think that's, those are the, just kind of the biggest challenges, you know, it, so. One, one thing that I'm wondering about too, cause we're, we're working on at devchat.tv, our own podcast management software, uh, also written in rails. And Scott and I had a conversation about containerizing it, which was also an interesting conversation a couple of weeks ago. But one thing that I'm looking at now is it'd be nice to get to the point where we're doing continuous delivery, but we've got to get tests around things and, you know, things that we don't have tests on and and stuff like that. So what are the prerequisites to confidently doing continuous delivery or continuous deployment? Because, I mean, you mentioned the feature flags, which is one thing, but, you know, I don't really want to push it out there unless I'm fairly confident that it's not going to blow stuff up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's, um, you know, trying to backfill, so to speak, tests. Um, you know, the best time to do it is whenever you're going in to implement or make changes to say an existing app, you know, internal application. You go in there and you, okay, so I'm gonna try to backfill tests and add tests for things that we maybe neglected to do because we were not focused on testing early on. And I mean, I think that's what what I've had to do is is rather than try to spend like a week just going in and rewriting tests <laughs> randomly throughout the app or something like that, I think it makes the most sense when you're in there making changes. And, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I don't know, like you, you know, your comfort le- level with going towards continuous deployment has a lot to do with, you know, like, you know, like how critical is what you're deploying? Like if this, if this is, a content website is probably not that big of a deal, but if you are an e-commerce business, it, it really changes kind of the game. And if you're a, uh, like an, a web app, it's, it's even more probably critical that you be careful about the changes you make. And then if you're an API, you have to, you probably don't want to do continuous delivery unless you're only continuously delivering, you know, like bug fix type things, you know, you have to be very purposeful about making API change long-term. So. Yeah, I think ultimately it, it also comes down how you make these changes. For example, if you um, if you version your API endpoints like Facebook does it, um, then you're free to deploy to an, an unreleased uh, API endpoint as soon as you want. Um, you just can't break API endpoints that are already in use. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And um, for us, the, the goal is definitely to deploy um, any type of application continuously at some point in time, potentially there might be some key components where we feel like we don't want to do it five times a day or 10 times a day. Maybe we just want to do it once per day and uh, wait for feedback or something. We are mainly a, a B2B company right now. That means we have a lot of APIs that other big companies are using in order to, to use our software to give integration to their customers or give some value to their customers. And obviously we do not want to break those, uh, those API endpoints. Um, that being said, we uh, also have efforts to um, change these APIs to use GraphQL, which has a schema that we can enforce and then we can version API endpoints. And we know that uh, if we add something to the schema, it's going to be fine. If we remove something from the schema, it's going to break the, the client integration, so we can't do that. Um, mm-hmm. So there's definitely tooling around or technologies around allowing deploying any type of service continuously. Yeah. 
When I first started taking computer science classes in college, I thought programming was just a joke. In fact, I changed my major over to engineering and started doing computer engineering and chip design. Then I found Ruby and I fell in love. I love Ruby. It was my first real programming language where I dove deep and really learned how to make software that makes a difference for other people. Since then, and the way that we got started with devchat.tv, we started a show called Ruby Rogues. It's currently in the 400s of episodes. We've talked to hundreds of people in the Ruby community about the Ruby community, about the Ruby programming language, about Rails, and about what makes good programming. So if you're interested in Ruby Rogues, or you just want to hear a long series of experienced programmers talking about real problems, then go check out rubyrogues.com. What do you think it takes to be able to do continuous delivery? Because I know we hear all the time, at least I hear all the time when I have conferences, there's people who want the magic DevOps appliance that they can put in their data center and suddenly be doing the DevOps. Uh, what does it take for an organization to do continuous delivery? I don't think there's a, like a, a magic bullet that works for everyone. Um, the, the way we approach it, it's mostly, I think, process-driven. Um, so we establish some rules like instead of having long-lived feature, uh, sorry, long-lived environment branches, and if you want to deploy to production, you push to production, um, we're going to do trunk-based development. It means everything goes into master, and if you want to, you can snapshot the code in, in time at any point and version it. And then this is your deployable artifact. In our case, it's a container image that we create at this point in time where the tag was created and the tests were passed. And then we have this deployable artifact, right? And we know that the tests passed, we can then use it in uh, integration tests between different applications. So we spin up a whole stack and run some automated tests against the whole thing instead of running it just against the... Um, uh, just running a unit type of test. And we have some standards around how this deployable artifact then makes it into an environment by using a, a dedicated pipeline that tracks this event that it was deployed, um, that looks into statistics that happened after it was deployed. Like it collects metrics about, do we get more 500s now? Um, do we get less of them? Do we have... Uh, a breaking endpoint, did a number of users drop and all of these, these type of things. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, who writes as something I, I know some more to struggle with is who writes the integration test? The unit test, it's, it's pretty clear. The developer who's developing the application should write it, but in your, or who writes the integration test? Is it the developers themselves or is it someone else? In the past, it's mostly been a dedicated team that was responsible for integration tests. And with these efforts, the, the responsibility of this team changes more to enforcing standards and teaching people how to write integration tests so that uh, the members of the individual teams actually start writing those tests. Um, that being said, just like everyone else, uh, we're not at 100% coverage, specifically not with integration tests. Um, so this team is still busy with uh, backfilling integration tests. Got it. I think that is true of, of any org. Uh, at Chef, something we started doing a few years ago is rather than trying to have our technical docs team write all the documentation for all the things we were doing, uh, we put them in more of an editor role where uh, engineers are supposed to write their own mm -hmm. uh, documentation, but the technical content people are there at any point to give feedback and how it should be structured uh, to help uh, e e you know, figure out who needs what documentation where and such. So it's a good way I find to bring practices into an org is to have some experts in it who are there not to do it for everyone else in the org, but to serve as a resource on how you do it and gradually train people in them. Right, totally. Empower the team to do it themselves and give them the tools to do their job, right? That's the, yeah. Yeah, and the developer oftentimes has a lot of relevant, you know, technical knowledge and maybe structural knowledge about how this feature is implemented and how it maybe it would be used. But the editor brings a lot of like, they can bring a lot of consistency and kind of like the kind of general documentation way that that maybe that company is doing and kind of really clean it up. I mean, I, I I've done some, um, some of the, the few open source contributions I did were to, um, uh, like documentation on Django and Jink. And I can remember writing it. Now I thought I was paying attention really well with, with the style and format they wanted. And then I think it was completely different by the time it actually got pushed 
uh, live, but you know, I definitely contributed a lot of code samples in the core written word. It's just, I think they just reworked it. And it's just funny. You just, even when you're like paying attention, you know, there's um, people that have a lot better idea of how to do it right. Totally. And I think that's the, I mean, the, the problem that you're describing or we're talking about is essentially always the same that you want, you want to empower people to do the work on their own, but you want to give them the tools to do the work the right way and that the result is, is correct. So like if you think about Heroku as a platform, you, you just push your code and it works and you can add like a database and all that stuff where you as a developer know you need it and they as, as a company know how to run it for you. And that's essentially where we want to end up in, in terms of um, we know how to spin up a database for you. You just have to set this config in a YAML file and we're going to do it for you. You just have to tell us that you want it. And we as a, as a DevOps team or as an infrastructure team, we don't understand the application. I don't know whether you need Postgres in version 10 or 11 or 9 or schema extensions or whatever. So. Uh, we're providing the tools and the, the developers will do the actual work. Yes. Got it. So did you set up a C, well, I think maybe, did you have a CI pipeline previously and then convert that same pipeline into a CD pi pipeline or did you build a whole new one? Um, we started building a whole new one. We were really amazed with what CodeFresh can do. So every application we're working on is uh, runs in containers already. Um, and we're also trying to switch to from EZS to Kubernetes right now. And CodeFresh had some really nice integration when it came to um, dealing with containers and containerized infrastructure. So we migrated from CircleCI, which is also a great platform that I still use for a lot of other things, uh, but not in this particular case. Uh, we moved to CodeFresh. Um, we are also we're using CodeFresh more or less for the uh, integration part and then tagging the builds and creating the build artifacts. And then for the actual deployment, we are currently evaluating uh, Argo CD, which is a CNCF project. I, yes, it is, which runs as um, an application in our Kubernetes cluster. And when we uh, push an image, we just trigger trigger a sync basically from our CI CD pipeline to Argo CD and then CD um, pulls an updated uh, Git repository that defines all the manifests for Kubernetes uh, that tells us which version of which image to use in which deployment and what service name or which public name the service is gonna have, et cetera, and applies that against the cluster. So we have a GitHub repository that reflects the source of truth for the for the whole stack of the company. It means every single application is described in, a, in YAML files in this repository. And if everything goes to hell, I can clone this repository and apply it against the cluster for my laptop and everything is back up and running. YAML uh, config files all the way down. It's so much YAML. I don't think I write any code anymore <laughs> these days. It's, it's just YAML. YAML that becomes something else too. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, but the tooling around all of this stuff is, is really, really great these days. There's so many amazing things that um, allow you to basically model any type of workflow that, that you want to have. The question for me, something I found with Kubernetes environments is there's so many different Kubernetes plugins now, which is fantastic, mm -hmm. um, but it does, there, there's not a consensus on what's the right way to do it. So how did you choose which components to use for your pipeline? Um, great question. And the answer is we're still evaluating. And, um, the, I, we have this, um, do as minimal, do the, the, the minimal thing you can do. That means we started out and we tried uh, flux CD, which is also something that follows this whole GitOps, um, methodology. And we found there were some limitations around executing jobs when you, for example, deploy a new version of a Rails application and you want to um, run your DB migrate or something to basically run a job before the application goes live. FluxCD didn't have support for that, otherwise a great tool. So we're now switching to Argo CD, which has support for that. And that's how we usually tackle the other things as well. We so far try to avoid the whole uh, Helm track um, and just use customize and, and regular Kubernetes manifests. and that's been working well so far. And if we hit any limits in that, that capacity, we're going to try out Helm and see if that's going to 
give us anything. Awesome. So did you do something like, so take, take me behind the scenes at Hover, mm-hmm. nothing that's NDA, of course, sure. uh, but uh, what was your first step in moving to a CD uh, kind of workflow? What was the first step? Let me think. Or the first five. What was, what was among the first five, let's say? So the first step that we performed, we started out in June, July with this whole project. Um, and I'm not entirely sure what we did as a, as a first test. The way we get teams to adopt this process, there's essentially um, six steps. And the first step is, hey, prepare your application. That means make sure that it's 12 factorized, that everything is like, set via environment variable that your application exposes itself as a service, um, which was very interesting for front-end applications that are usually compiled down to JavaScript. Did some work there that they now, it's basically compiled to JavaScript, and then there's a Node.js server that's serving the JavaScript um, to the end user. It was pretty fun. I think we're going to actually release a blog post about that anytime soon. Maybe it goes live before this episode airs, so I'll send a link. So step one, prepare the application, well, factorize it, configure everything for environment variables. Um, step two, build the application uh, using CodeFresh or uh, CI CD vendor. And there's some standards around, hey, this is how you tag your images. This is how you uh, name things um, so that we basically can rely on certain conventions in, in later steps. Step three is test your application on CodeFresh. Make sure that the test pass and after the test passed, um, you annotate the image with uh, certain things so, so we know we can use them in, um, in, in later steps in the integration tests. And then uh, there was step three. Step four is um, if all the tests have passed, um, you as a team can now decide to basically tag this build with a certain version and let us know that we now have a deployable artifact that we can deploy to an environment at any point in time. And at this point, you should stop using environment-based branches and only use for master and then tag your builds accordingly. And once you've done that, you now have the freedom to deploy your application using this this tag build to any environment that you want. And you can do this with a um, CLI or you can use it by triggering it from uh, the CI-CD pipeline. And at this point, you are basically in, in this workflow that would allow you to do continuous delivery slash continuous deployment at any point in time. And then step six is start integrating feature flags, start uh, adopting all of these very important uh, aspects like, yeah, uh, feature flags. You want to send metrics. Uh, let's think about how we deploy your application. Are we doing a blue green deploy or a canary deploy? What are the metrics around? Uh, which metrics tell us that your application runs well versus not well. And we're going to start implementing those. And the more of these we implement, um, the, the more often you can deploy your application. Something I know that is a big part of 12, the 12 factor app is explicitly declaring and isolating your dependencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found dependency management, it's not the, 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 the providing solution for dependency management is not the thing that's going to get you accolades on Twitter or elsewhere, but it is a problem that it seems like every single organization has. You know, I have all this software, they have dependencies of different versions, different types. Uh, how did you approach uh, tackling that with your applications? Um, we were already in a pretty good state based on the fact that everything is already deployed, uh, sorry, everything is already deployed using containers. So the whole internal dependency management is done using Docker. Um, and then obviously the, the applications use tool like, tools like Bundler or Yarn or pipenv or whatever uh, works for your language. And then for the external dependencies, something we do not have standards around yet for now, it's um, tell infrastructure you need a database and then infrastructure sets up the database. Gotcha. But ultimately, Kubernetes also supports plugins to do that for you automatically. So that you can say, I need a PostgreSQL database. And if I deploy to my EKS or GKE cluster or whatever, it uh, spins up a instance, like a, an RDS instance or a Google Cloud database. I'm not sure how they're called. Um, uh, spins those up for you. So this is something that has uh, yet to come, but that's the general idea. The thing that's, I think, a little bit harder is uh, decoupling applications from each other. 
so that you can uh, deploy them individually. Let's say you have this, these two microservices or maybe these two monoliths and they talk to each other. And if you make changes to one, you need to make changes to the other one as well. Um, that, that's a bad situation that you don't want to be in because then you, you can't just deploy anymore, right? You have to deploy them at the same time and kind of coordinate that. And identifying these, um, this, this, uh, this type of coupling between applications, I think, is, is a very interesting struggle and something we, we have to figure out. doesn't happen a lot, but there's certain communication aspects around applications where they restore files in this path in this cloud storage, and the other application is supposed to know that and pick it up from there. And that's a, that's a contract between two, these two applications. That means we can't change that without breaking things. So we need to be more explicit with the contracts, the communication contracts and say, I placed this file here, other service, please pick it up from there. Right. And you definitely want that other service to let you know if that file was not there all of a sudden. Right. Yeah. You, you also want to know about it when it, when it went wrong. Mm. Right. All right. Well, any other more thoughts or questions on continuous delivery? Let me see. Mm. Yeah. One of the, the very interesting struggles we have from a cultural uh, perspective is that we currently have dedicated teams that do manual QA. And right now they have, you know, about a week worth of time before something goes live. Um, so they have enough time to QA something. If we think about um, deploying, deploying code uh, all the time, then there's obviously feature flags that they can use um, to like test stuff and gradually roll it out. The other thing we are uh, having conversations about is if we want to support some form of ephemeral environments so that instead of um, relying on there to be a staging and a production or maybe like a pre-staging, I don't know, um, just production. And if you want to show something to someone before it actually goes out, you can spin up this uh, whole environment with the whole stack just for the specific use case. And it includes everything that you need to run. I know so, for me, whenever I've been working on place, at places with one staging environment, it's so frustrating when I've got my changes up there and I'm ready for someone to review it and then someone else deploys their changes to it. Uh, so uh, it, it's really nice having the ability to have those ephemeral environments. Yeah, totally. The, the thing that's not very clear to me right now is if we would absolutely follow these practices and hide everything behind feature flags and have the ability to turn on these feature flags for, you know, certain people in the, the organization, do we still need these ephemeral environments? Do they give us something that we don't get from the feature flags? Oh, thoughts? I would think it would give you the possibility to discover unexpected interactions between services uh, before it goes to production. Features I can see completely having behind feature flags and just putting them to production, but anywhere we are changing the way different microservices or different services in general uh, interact with each other. I know for me personally, it gives me a lot of security to have an, an entire environment I can spin up to test that in. That's, that's a very good point. So you could also catch things that you necessarily couldn't catch with, um with integration tests where you can just write Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a fair point. I'll, I mean, I'm, I'll... I'm a big proponent of every developer having access to their own kind of clean, you know, deployment environment. You know what I mean? If that means that yeah, everybody has their own AWS account or Google cloud account that, that, that they're just doing their own kind of deployment. If, if that makes sense, it doesn't always make sense for that. I mean, I think it, you know, the bigger a company is, the more developers are, they're less likely that's necessary. But I do think, um, I, I think that's a good practice. Not always yeah. necessary, but yeah. Yeah. I think one of the, the advantages of the, the trunk-based uh, development is that essentially this, I deployed my feature to staging and now someone else deployed their feature to staging couldn't really happen because everything always has to come from master, right? That means before a person A can, um, can deploy their changes, they need to rebase and merge or squash and merge into master. Mm -hmm. And from there, there's a new release being created, uh, sorry, a new build being created and this build can then be deployed to an environment, but it still has my changes included in it. I can definitely see that. Yeah. Yeah, lots of interesting questions, and uh, we see where we're going to end up. Hmm. 
the field is young. There's, there's a lot more questions to come, but it means we have the opportunity to shape it, which is one of the best things about being in DevOps for me personally. Agreed. Yeah. It, one of the things that's kind of a random thought is that, you know, every day we turn around and there's like a new, I mean, you've mentioned a couple I haven't even heard of like code fresh. I've never heard of that. You know, every time I turn on Argo CD, like there's all these new CI/CD tools and, you know, you know, I, you know, a lot of times, you know, there's consolidation that happens as a market matures and I'm not really sure we're going to see that much consolidation in all these tools. Um, I mean, it's possible some of it, you know, maybe a few will go out of business and some will get acquired. And, uh, but, you know, it's, it's weird because I, I mean, I think, you know, it's a very green field. We'll just have to see how it shakes out. It is overwhelming. Yeah. I think besides CodeFresh, everything we use is um, open source. Besides CodeFresh and a feature flagging system, everything is open source. Um, and what I found really helpful is looking at the Cloud Native Computing Foundation landscape. It's like this giant map of projects in a certain field and they, um, they host and support certain projects. So that means if this foundation buys into a project, uh, includes, for example, Kubernetes, um, Argo CD and, and many, many others, then you have a certain, uh, certain confidence that this project will be maintained for a long time and that this is where the industry is going towards. I remember when the CNCF uh, finally made the image of all the projects on their website uh, text searchable because you used to have to get really, really close to your computer monitor to try to, because Habitat, which is a project I work on, was mm -hmm. added to it and we all had to squint to figure out where it was under there. Uh, so it's a lot of projects, but having that promise that it will be maintained or that it meets certain standards is extremely helpful when you're trying to figure out which of, you know, five different options you should use. Totally. And, and this is basically how we picked Flux and then Argo, which is they're both cloud native uh, projects. One is, I think, incubated and the other one is, sorry, I don't, I don't know the exact terms and how they <laughs> classify their projects. Um, but yeah, there was like some some security around choosing these projects and making a good choice with that. Yeah, no, I th I definitely think the cloud what cloud native is doing is really important, especially. I mean, I suppose it's you know it's you know important, definitely important for open source projects, right? So, and I mean, it's it's funny because there's of course all these corporate you know tool creators, the HashiCorps of the world that are you know you assume because they're a business that they're going to stay in business, but many of these things are funded with uh, millions of dollars and hundreds of millions of dollars. And so they could ostensibly disappear at some point if they are mismanaged. I mean, look at what's going on with Docker right now. I mean, we could probably have a whole yeah. episode on what's going on with Docker <laughs> right now. Do, do they actually have a real business there? And what happens if, you know, um, that business collapses and, you know, obviously it's open source, but uh, is somebody going to, Google maybe come along and buy the IP or, you know, say the salvage kind of the open source stuff. I mean, I don't know there's a, bit, a lot of open questions there. It's very true. Very yeah. true. Awesome. All right. Oh, go ahead, Chuck. I was just going to say, I mean, it's, it's interesting to just how quickly this all moves. It, it's interesting. I've, uh, I've probably sat in on five or six podcast episodes already this week and inevitably somebody's mentioned something that happened you know and then they're like yeah and and that started in like 2016 and i'm like really it was, it's only been a you know three three and a half years i mean <laughs> it's it's amazing how quickly this all moves too and so you know when you're talking about oh well you know it it, it has some longevity I mean, sometimes we're talking about a five-year span right and then something's gone as opposed <laughs> to you know longevity as in we have a business we're hoping will be around for 20, 30 years, and we want to be able to have some stability in what we're choosing now. A few years ago at a JavaScript conference, I was approached by Nader Dabit, and you might know him for the React Native Radio podcast. He's also a developer evangelist for Amazon. And when he came to me, we had a conversation about React Native. And the thing that I love about React Native is that it's approachable, it's web technology, and it's cross-platform. And it makes a lot of things really easy for developers to jump in and do interesting things on mobile with JavaScript. So we've had this show now running for several years, React Native Radio, where we interview people about the React Native ecosystem, 
some of the things that are coming out in React and how they affect mobile and other options that you have for mobile development. So if you're doing mobile development, you're doing it in JavaScript, you're looking for a good option, or maybe you're just trying to stay current with React Native, then go check out React Native Radio at reactnativeradio.com. What, what does Microsoft support things like SQL Server for like 10 years, 15 years? I mean, it's like a huge period of yeah. time, right? Uh, Windows 2008 is just coming to, or Windows Server 2008 is just coming to the end of its, uh, uh, its support life. Mm. But yeah. if you think about the reason why they need to support that long is because the companies using these technologies do not have the tools to replace them fast enough. And That's a very good point. So if we all yeah. move towards this um, methodology of um, doing things faster while also gaining stability, then Microsoft can stop supporting their software for 15 years and can do it two years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what's interesting there too, though, is that yeah, a lot of times they don't have the resources to upgrade, you know, server 2008 to, you know, what, whatever the next version was. I, I really haven't paid attention. But um, the, the other end of that is, is that then what happens is now we're in 2019 and what they have out there now for server uh, operating systems is so far removed from that, that then they've got this gigantic task of moving up. And so in some ways they've kicked the can down the road and now they're facing some real issues. So there are trade-offs there in that approach as well. Totally. It's just writing an application. You, you have to pay down some tech debt on the way. If you're just not writing tests and just keep adding features at some point, you, you got to sit down and write those tests or throw the application away and, and redo it. Yep. Mm -hmm. Or deal with a whole bunch of unhappy customers because that, something's yeah. not working or take a year to develop one new feature. There's, uh, there's, there's many options, but I think the, yeah. the, we, we always want to move fast in, in software development. And I think the infrastructure needs, or infrastructure yeah. people want to adopt the, the same principles. And we're, we're getting to see the tools and methodologies to actually do that. Yeah, Have you and a seen... lot of times you're really just making intelligent trade-offs on the risks you're willing to take, because you can't do it all. Right, it's, it's always, yeah, trade-offs and risk assessment. Julian, have you seen any of the tools that you guys are using? Um, are they are they working off of a more planned release cycle and and having like long term support additions or anything like that? I mean, there, yeah, Kubernetes, for example, has like some some release plan and there's like some some form of support, and then the vendors that run Kubernetes also give you some longevity of a certain version. Um, but they also give us the ability to upgrade to the latest version fairly easily. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the plan is definitely to kind of stay on top of it and necessarily use the newest version as soon as it comes out, but uh, pretty soon after it was released. <laughs> uh, and the, um, the, the whole thing goes more and more into everything runs in the cloud. So if we use, for example, a, a HashiCorp product, then there is some form of management around using this HashiCorp product. And I don't have to take care of deploying a new version. I'm just going to pay them to do that for me and update the, the services. Yeah, I, part of why I was asking about that long-term support thing is as a Django developer, I've moved to the point where I only work off of long-term support mm -hmm. versions of it. And I'll just jump from one long-term support to the next, just because just, I think it reduces my, um, my overhead of worrying about upgrading the the core. And because a lot of, even Django is, is pretty API stable. It, there's still breaking changes that, um, that, uh, become, you know, it just adds work. So. Yeah. yeah makes sense. Well, and it gives you a longer window for that upgrade, right? So if you mm -hmm. can't get to it when there's the new better thing, you can get to it before the support is gone. Mm -hmm. Right. It's more even more complicated when you're in controlled environments. Uh, I was on site with a national security contractor a few years ago, yeah. and we were wondering why they were using Apache 5 and not Apache 6. And the answer was because it had Apache 6 hadn't been approved yet for them to use. There's a very intense vetting process. Uh, so you, when you can't upgrade right away, you want a very quick way to upgrade when you, do, when you are finally able to. Mm-hmm. 
Awesome. Well, this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Julian. I yeah. uh, something we do at the oh sorry Scott go ahead no 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 I was just gonna say thanks for joining us as well Julian it was great yeah thanks thanks for having me it was a lot of fun great talking to you guys awesome so something we do at the end of each show is we share picks which is something that's made our life useful or delightful in the past past few weeks sometimes it's technical sometimes it's not uh, just something useful that other people should check out if they have the wish. Uh, I'll go ahead and go first. So I was in Buffalo, New York for DevOps Days Buffalo a week or two ago. I can't even remember at this point. But something I was introduced to introduced to was the beef on weck sandwich, which is particularly found in Western New York State and primarily in the city of Buffalo. It's roast beef that's sliced really, really thin, that's rare, and it's served on a roll that's topped with kosher salt and caraway, caraway seeds. It is absolutely delicious. If you find yourself in Buffalo, New York, I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, Chuck, how about you? I'll tell you, I'll go for beef on anything. Sure. Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, you, you're making me rethink my picks here. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll do the, one of the picks that I planned on and then a couple of others. Uh, so, uh, or two of the picks anyway. So I ran the St. George marathon on Sunday or Saturday. Nice. And, uh, that was my first marathon. So of course, um, it was kind of surreal. You get up to the starting line and for me, you know, the concept of running a marathon and the concept of running down that highway for 26.2 miles were completely divorced in my head. And so part of me was going, there's no way you can run a marathon. And the other part of me was going, you know what the highway looks like? Cause I've driven it several times. Mm. You know what the highway looks like? That's not going to be too bad. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I got to the end. I was, you know, a little dehydrated, super tired and looking forward to the next one. So um, I'm going to pick the St. George marathon. I'm also just going to pick marathon training in general. It's something I didn't know if I could do and I just did it and, and, you know, kind of pushed the idea of what I'm capable of. So I really enjoyed that. So Chuck, that's the St. George marathon in Southern Utah, Southern Utah. Yeah. It's about an hour and a half from, um, Las Vegas. Yeah. Nice. It's close to Zion too, which is an amazing yes. place. Very close to Zion national park. Um, terrific area. We, we wind up down there every year for the parade of homes. Um, mm which is just, you know, they, they, the, build, the builders down there show off the nice homes that they've built. And uh, yeah, we, we really enjoy the St. George area. Um, and it's grown a lot over the last few years. So yeah, uh, that was awesome. The other pick that I was going to pick that I'm going to shout out about is that I'm working on um, a membership site. It should be out pretty soon. Um, and it's, it's going to be at maxcoders.io. And the whole idea is that um, I've talked to a number of the companies out there that are making courses for developers and a lot of them cover DevOps stuff too, but they're very focused on the technology. And what I find is that there are a lot of people who are doing okay on understanding the technology they need to do their job, but they're failing in some of the interpersonal skills or planning their career or knowing what to do when they need to negotiate a higher salary or you know, all of those kinds of things. And really what it is, is it's, hey, these are the kinds of people that I would like to hire. These are the kinds of people that I've really enjoyed working with over the years. These are the kinds of people that really make team players. Um, and it turns out more and more companies are hiring for those skills anyway. If you have a basic idea of how to do the job and you have these skills, they'll hire you and train you because they know that you're going to work out. And so um, I'm putting that system or that membership site together and putting together a system for people to build those skills so that they can be successful, not just in their career, but in life. And that's going to be at maxcoders.io. Nice. Um, and I'm super excited about it. Um, oh, can't wait so, to check it out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I should have the membership site up here within the next couple of weeks as we record this, which probably means that uh, within a week of this coming out, we'll, we'll be good to go. I'm still figuring out the pricing. I've gotten all kinds of feedback on what the price should be. It's probably going to be lower than what most people are telling me to make it just because I want it available to as many people as possible, but still make it sustainable so that I can keep working on it. So that, that's kind of the balance I'm seeking there. So uh, maxcoders.io. And then I, I'm going to pick because beef, man, beef. So I have a smoker sitting on my front porch. My wife got it for me for Christmas. And it looks like a mini fridge, 
So it just plugs into the wall. Then you just uh, put the wood chips in it. It has an electric heating element in it, warms it up. Uh, and then it basically just slow cooks your meat. And so um, I love that thing. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I don't remember what brand it is off the top of my head, but I, I love it. And I typically uh, will do ribs or some other meat in it. Um, if you're doing anything like that, I like to follow the three, two, one method. And I'll put a link to that in there as well. Works really well for ribs. Um, you come out with just really moist, fall off the bone, bone type ribs that are just, <laughs> they're wonderful. <laughs> and then um, one other just anecdotal thing, somebody said the word delightful and <laughs> it just reminded me. And so I'm just going to tell this real quick. Um, I was at a thing for my daughter at the church yesterday. And uh, I knew that one of my neighbors had had some outpatient patient surgery. So I just checked in on him. I was like, how was your surgery? And he was like, oh, it was delightful. And I was like, I was like, I've never heard anyone say delightful about surgery. And then he told me about how not so bad it was. Hmm. But not so bad to me is not delightful. Anyway, I just thought that was funny. So, <laughs> so yeah. So apparently they get delightful surgeries over here. So Maybe because he didn't have pain or didn't have negative complications. He's like, it was delightful. It yeah. turned out so much better than I expected. Yeah, or the pretty pain much. meds could have still been in effect. But. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was mixing the pain meds with some booze or something. His wife said that when he came out of surgery, he was singing like loudly. <laughs> so, yeah. Nice, nice. Julian, yeah. would you like to go next or should I go? Uh, go for it, Scott. Um, so since everybody's making like sandwich or food recommendations, um, you know, I, it's been a couple of years, but uh, I had never thought I was good because I'm a vegan. I never thought I was going to be able to get a, you know, like a Philly cheesesteak. And I found out that in, you know, in some of the, I, I went to South Philly and you could actually get a broccoli rob cheesesteak, but no cheese. And it was spicy and delightful and wonderful. And I'm guessing maybe the bread is possibly not vegan. So you could just skip the bread and just eat what's on the sandwich, but it was still fantastic. Um, so that's my, my food recommendation. Um, I also have a, I always make book recommendations because I, it's just something that's really top of mind because I'm always listening to books. Um, and so the book recommendation I will make is Ultra Learning by Scott Young. Um, the forward is actually by an author that I'm really into, James Clear, who wrote Atomic Habits, which is also a fantastic Great book. book. But uh, so Ultra Learning, um, I think it's really interesting. I, I like listening to a lot of these things because I typically, whenever I really get dig into a new topic or something, I really kind of binge on it. And um, I think it's a really smart way to address like skill acquisition and um, kind of leveling yourself up. Um, and so, oh, but uh, kind of the adjacent recommendation to ultra learning is a lot of times I didn't realize this, um, but you typically nowadays, your local library will have a subscription to either um, something like called like Libby um, or I, think, I can't remember what the other one is, but you can, if you have a library card, then you can register the, you can download the app and you can get like Kindle books and audiobooks for free through your library membership, um, you know, download it onto your phone and you can reserve things and usually has okay. Um, for me, in my experience using Libby, it has okay um, selection. It's not as good as say Audible or whatever, but it's a good free alternative. And maybe I, I use it in addition to my Audible listening as well. So, um, so that those are my picks. Awesome. Thank you. Well, Julian, how about you? Yeah, all these great food picks make me really hungry, but I can't come up with one myself. So um, <laughs> I think I have to pick YAML. Yeah, I, I'm, just awesome. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's a great graphic language, but uh, it's so hard to template. Um, I'm going to create a, a markup language called Bacon. Ooh, I'm going <laughs> to use that for sure. Yeah. There we go. So there is one pick I have, which is um, you should either read the Accelerate book and or um, the State of DevOps, which is created by the people behind Accelerate, um, Dora and Google Cloud. Um, mm -hmm. Not necessarily behind Accelerate, but it's uh, all in the spirit of Accelerate. So if you deploy software um, or write software in any form and you work on a team and you want to make sure that you are as efficient as possibly and learn what it takes to get there. Um, book Accelerate uh, and also check out the State of DevOps 2019 report. And my other pick is something that's called the Alexander Technique, 
um, I've been struggling with some pain in various areas of my body, hip, back, um, shoulders, etc. over the past years. And I've been trying to learn more about my body and how to move better and sit better and lay better, etc. And something that really clicked for me was um, Alexander Technique, which is basically teaching you about how your body works, what posture is, and how to apply, how to like identify bad patterns and develop better patterns and apply that in just day-to-day -day situations. Um, and if you're in San Francisco Bay Area, there's a great teacher, I highly recommend, her name is Flora, um, walkinbalance.net. Check it out, otherwise Google Alexander Technique in your city if you're in pain or not in pain and just wanna look taller, really worth it. That sounds fantastic. Well, thank you again, everyone, for joining us for this show. Thank you to our listeners for listening. It's been a great one, and we will be in your ears uh, next week. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Max out, everybody. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.